Welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. Gerard and I can't remember what week of quarantine we're in, but I can promise you all that my hair is a completely different color than it was probably the last time anybody (laughs) saw me other other than my family. And Gerard, we've got a special edition today. Uh, Speaking of the family, speaking of family, because we are going to be hosting... um, Kimberly Robinson. You must be pretty excited about that. I am pretty excited. I know her quite well. <laughs> You've met her before. Yeah. Yes. Well, I've got some. I'm um, I'm excited to be able to hear about her really, really important work. And I think our listeners are going to enjoy it as well. A testament so to the, um, you know, the, the people that we have on this podcast. I'm constantly amazed by our ability to get people with different points of view, different streams of work. Mm-hmm. And um, really eager to hear about Kimberly and, and the work she's doing lately and, and her new book. Other than that, how, how are you guys holding up in the Robinson household? What color is your hair these days, Gerard? So my hair is still turning gray, so that hasn't changed, but I almost had a little afro, uh, which would have taken me back to my pictures in the 1970s as a kid. But fortunately, I found a uh, guard for my clipper set. And I've been cutting my own hair maybe twice a week for the last five weeks. So mm-hmm. it's short. I don't have a fade, but it's manageable. So and I'm letting uh, what my middle daughter, in fact, I'm letting her line the back of my neck and stuff. So, you know, we're putting everybody to work. It's a family affair. I mean, exactly. you can't just have it so easy. I, you know, I did cut my, my boy's hair um, it, it didn't turn out well, but you know, it, it'll, it'll grow back. <laughs> but my daughter and I are sort of looking at each other going, how long can this last? Anyhow, well, a lot to talk about in the world of education, especially as, um, you know, we, we continue to need and, uh, and beg for more money from the federal government, especially for schools. And this week, no shortage of controversy as finally the federal department of education releases guidance on um, on how, well, they released it, I guess, late last week, but um, guidance on equitable services under the CARES Act. So this guidance applies both to the GEAR funds, the governor's funds, and ESSER mm-hmm. funds. Um, and, and of course, um, when we talk about equitable services, a lot of our listeners are probably saying, eh, I mean, I've heard of it. I sort of get it. Others are saying, please, please stop talking about that. And others are probably saying, I'm not sure what that is. Um, and, and basically, this is the idea, right, as you know, Gerard, that um, that non-public schools or private schools um, still educate students who are paying taxes into their local public school district or their families are, still educate students, many of whom would qualify for federal programs like Title I, so students who um, have suffered from lower academic performance or who qualify for free and reduced price lunch under Title I. And this guidance under the CARES Act has caused a little bit of controversy because it's different than the guidance that we usually see or the way Title I usually works for non-public schools. And it's different because, well, we're in a different time, aren't we? So mm-hmm. it's, it's based on this, this idea that, you know, uh, hey, a lot of private schools, as we've discussed, are at risk of closure. Um, in fact, just today we got word that um, that uh, uh, one of the oldest private schools, I think, in the country, in Maryland, Catholic school, um, mm-hmm. was 
school network will be will be shuttering its doors. Um, some folks are saying that upwards of a third of Catholic schools in this country could shutter if we don't do something quickly. And um, and you know, let's not forget that non-public schools serve millions and millions of low-income families in this country in schools of choice. So. What the guidance here says from the Department of Education is that even though Title I is the mechanism that the federal government used to dis- to uses to distribute CARES fundings to the, to the states, right? So they're going to look at um, how, what each state gets based on sort of it's how Title I is calculated. Um, this guidance says that when it comes to non-public schools or private schools, that any CARES money that a local school district gets, um, all non-public school students and teachers are eligible for equitable services. So what does that mean? Well, non-public schools don't directly take money from the federal government, but they are due like um, under Title I. If kids qualify, they can take certain services. They can request that the school district set aside certain money that will go towards services that the private schools can use. And it's the same under CARES, except here, because of the moment that we're in, um, it's regardless, the money will be distributed to to private schools, to non-public schools, regardless of, you know, whether or not kids they serve have um, had have had low performance in prior years or um, qualify as low income or some other qualification. So, this has caused some degree of controversy, and I'm going to refer here to an article in Chalkbeat this week. It was uh, May 5th, yesterday. Um, was that yesterday? Who knows what day it is? But uh, <laughs> the from DeVos means more coronavirus relief for private schools. So, of course, you know, those who are used to getting and keeping federal money, because to be clear, a lot of private schools, even though they absolutely qualify, do not take Title I funds, do not even seek them. And sometimes when they do, districts will say, oh, gee, they're not there anymore. Um, they're, they're used to keeping that money. And this guidance sort of enters us into a new world. Now, with this article saying, and I got to say, Gerard, we try to be nice on this show. I try to be nice most of the time. <laughs> I, think we're, I, I think we're very nice. I think we're very nice. This article commits some pretty big sins of omission here, in my opinion, by sort of um, not addressing the um, what the private schools think or who the private schools serves. I mean, it starts with this notion that somehow um, private schools are set to, actually, I'll just quote it, private schools are set to receive more support than they expected from the federal coronavirus release package. And it says this move will be a boon to private schools. Um, but it has public school advocates up in arm arguing that will funnel precious resources to wealthy private schools while districts struggle to provide computers and free meals. Well, to be clear, first of all, um, a lot of private schools are struggling to do the same thing. To be Correct. clear, this isn't funneling money. Uh, private schools will be eligible to do the things that you can do under CARES, like request that the public school district calculate the number of pupils it serves and then allocates money so the private school can contract either with the district or with a third-party provider to do things like sanitize its schools so that children are safe. Um, and as with all other title programs, any services that private schools receive uh, remain in the public domain. So if a local school district has to use funds to provide computers to kids in non-public schools, again, many of whom are low income and their families don't have access, um, the, the school district actually gets to keep those computers. So 
All to say that this, you know, so this article goes on to quote many, for example, superintendents and others, but pretty much nobody from a private school that has students who need the kinds of things that will be provided under CARES. So I would say it's shockbeat. If you're listening, we'd also like to hear um, the other side. Now, to be fair, this is good guidance for for non-public schools. Um, and it's going to, we hope, help a lot of them. But also guidance is guidance. And um, and there's nothing to say that local school districts won't flout the guidance. Um, so it's going to be up to state ombudsmen and, and state education agencies to, um, to think about kids rather than bureaucracies at this point and, and helping all kids who, um, who, who need it in this moment. Okay. I think, I think I'm done with my rant. <laughs> If you'd like to play it. Oh, no. That was that was more than a rant. It was good, a good dose of reality and a good reality check. In every crisis, we have an opportunity to be prophetic or pathetic. And I think that we should be prophetic, meaning private schools uh, are older than the public school system as we know it today. They've educated wealthy families and poor families for a very long time. We know since 1965, which support uh, from people like uh, later on, uh, people like Augustus Hawkins from California, a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, who push for the idea that we need to make public dollars available to families in need. We are in a crisis that is unprecedented. And the opportunity to have access to funds to do what you said, keep schools clean, to give students access to learning when they come back is just important. And hopefully we can see that we've got a line of demarcation today. We have public education and we have, edu- we have education in the public's interest. Education in the public's interest includes all schools, schools that prepare students for uh, not only jobs, but college, but frankly, just to be great people, to raise their families or if they don't have families to take care of themselves, to be a part of our democratic republic. Schools that work in the public's interest, that makes a lot of sense. But to think that public schools alone can do it uh, uh, is not the case. And we've seen this before. We know that some people say this is just another way of gouging money away from public schools, giving it away to underperforming private schools. And yes, you and I both know there are a lot of underperforming private schools. There's some private schools in the tax credit program and voucher programs that should close. And I've supported Uh, the move for some of those. But I just think we need to take a moment to be prophetic, because as long as we remain pathetic, the people who are going to be hurt are the families who we say we want to help. Middle class and wealthy families will use social networks uh, to make things work. And some families simply cannot. So we've seen how this stuff works out. I believe in the better angels of our nature. And I understand they've got a constituency to support. I know there's some superintendents who are interested in all children, and I'm glad to see that take place. But as par for the course, I'm just leaning more on schools and the public's interest. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as we talk about schools and the public's interest, we also have to talk about higher education. And we know that universities from Howard University to Harvard University, from the University of Virginia to the University of California, have closed their doors to students and have hosted no sporting events. And we've only talked about school closure and its impact on millions of students uh, at a domestic level, but there's also an international context. 
And so there's no one particular article I'm going to focus on, but I've read several articles from mainstream publications to blogs. And they're talking about the impact of corona as well as the impact previously of President Trump's uh, ban on uh, certain countries and what this will mean for international students in the United States. Now, if we go back to the 1980s, Japan uh, was one of the top um, suppliers of students to the United States. You fast forward to 2015, 2016, for the first time in U.S. history, over a million students in our colleges were foreign students. And when you take a look at countries, you've got China, uh, which is by far the largest um, pipeline to foreign students in the United States, nearly one out of three uh, foreign students at our colleges from China, but you also have students from India, from South Korea, uh, from Saudi Arabia, Iran, you know, one of the countries with the ban in uh, other places. I know when I was an undergraduate student at Howard University in the late 1980s, uh, when I graduated, there were over 120 nationalities represented. And I remember students from different parts of Africa and from the Caribbean. So international students have played an important role, not only in the diversification of higher education, uh, but also bringing their voice to conversations about history, politics, business, engineering, and other challenges of late modern society. And so as we think about what Corona is doing uh, here, it's also impacting international conversations that ministers of education are having on even if the United States decides in fall or maybe in the spring of 2021 to open up school, you know, will we in fact send our students? And if they don't, you, you surely have a lot of presidents, provosts, budget directors who've already built five-year budgets with a calculation of X number of students who are going to come from international, uh, well, from the international community. Many of them pay uh, full freight. Many of them uh, also bring with them grants. So it's just something for us to consider as we're thinking about relief packages for colleges across the country. There's an international component in this that we have to think about both as taxpayers, philanthropists have to think about it as well, but it's just something to, uh, to keep in mind. It, it absolutely is. And I have to say, I think, Gerard, you know that I um, both studied and taught under the great Charlie Glenn at Boston University for a number of years. And Boston University is an example of one of many examples of universities that have spent a lot of time and capital marketing itself as a global university. And one is really left to wonder, um, you know, what this moment is going to mean for that global community, which has so many benefits, right? Um, but I think you make an excellent point. We've got to be thinking about these these assumptions that universities have made. And now that you mentioned uh, Professor Glenn, um, as you know, I'm now the vice president for education at the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation here in Charlottesville. And we published a book a couple of years ago called The Content of Our Character. Uh, James Hunter and, and uh, Ryan Olson are the uh, co-editors of that. But uh, Charlie actually has a chapter in there focused on Muslim schools. And yeah, the conversation is primarily about, you know, K-12, but it feeds into the broader concept of the role of Muslim families and what they play in American society. And for the same reason that Boston um, College played a role in inviting international students, you know, I've also got to give a plug out to Howard University, my alma mater, but a network of historically black colleges and universities, both public and private, 
who've accepted international students uh, going back to the 1800s, sometimes before uh, white institutions did so. So as we look forward to financial support for higher education, we also uh, thank Congress for the investment it made into our historical black colleges and universities because they're playing a role in this international conversation as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shout out to all. And hello, Charlie Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, coming up after the break, we're really excited to talk to, um, I don't know, I think, are you Mr. Kimberly Robinson? Is that how we should say it? You should say that. Okay. Fantastic. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) After this, we will be speaking with Kimberly Robinson. Learning Curve listeners, we are so lucky to have with us today a special member of the Learning Curve family. Kimberly Robinson is the Elizabeth D. and Richard A. Merrill Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law and Professor of Education at the Curry School of Education. Kimberly is a national expert who speaks domestically and internationally about educational equity, equal educational opportunity, civil rights, and the federal role in education. In 2019, New York University Press published her second edited book, A Federal Right to Education, Fundamental Questions for Our Democracy. In 2015, Harvard Education Press published her book that was co-edited with Professor Charles Ogletree Jr. of Harvard Law School titled The Enduring Legacy of Rodriguez, Creating New Pathways to Equal Educational Opportunity. Her scholarship has appeared in the University of Chicago Law Review, the Boston College Law Review, the William and Mary Law Review, and the UC Davis Law Review, among other venues. Kimberly earned a BA from the University of Virginia and a JD from Harvard Law School, and she also happens to be married to our very own Gerard Robinson. Kimberly, we're so excited to have you with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Well, um, I get I get the first question. We're going to make uh, your husband wait a little bit here. Um, so, you know, in the past on this show, we've had guests that talk about the federal right to education or um, or the federal role in education, I could say. But I think that you bring a very different, um, notably um, a, a, a very studied academic perspective to this. And I'd like to ask you, Um, about the goal of education as a federal right. So as we know, in states like Connecticut and New York, the annual per pupil expenditure is approximately $18,000 to $22,000, while in places like Mississippi and Utah, it's approximately $8,000 to $7,000. So huge gaps there, of course, even considering different costs of living in different parts of the country. Is is the legal goal of education as a federal right intended to establish a uniform national system? Or do you do this, if so, do you do this with a matching national funding formula? Or how do we think about these disparities in educational funding as syncing up or not with the right to education? Yeah, well, this is a great place to start because this is these questions sort of raises two misconceptions about a federal right to education. So one is that a federal right to education would push us towards some kind of national education system. And that is not the goal of a federal uh, right to education, nor would it be some kind of federal funding formula. What it does require is setting some kind of federal floor for the state education system. So education will remain in the primary control of the states, but the idea would be to 
sort of address those states that are not ensuring that education meets certain, um, enables children to achieve certain outcomes. So for example, um, ensuring that children are prepared to engage in democracy, ensuring that children um, receive an equitable or adequate education. So there's debate among scholars in my recent book about what the ultimate goal would be. So that there's some very real debate about focusing on particular outcomes for an adequacy model, looking at the opportunity to learn in an equity model. Um, another scholar pr uh, recommends both. But the idea is that the goal would be to address sort of the egregious um, opportunity gap in many states and then to but still to enable states to set their funding formula and states to set additional education goals but that there would have to be some kind of floor so that you don't have children who leave school who for example you know can't achieve certain outcomes so that would be the goal and I and I'm I'm glad we started with that because it's definitely a misconception of a federal right to education. We're going to federalize the system. There, I've only seen one or two scholars really push for an actual federal system, and most scholars do not advance that, and I, I certainly don't. Yeah, and, and I think many people are scared by that, right? Like yes. that, that suddenly we're going to become a different country. It's so fundamentally ingrained in the U.S. system of education, local control, local control. But can we talk a little bit? So you say it's about establishing a floor. Um, how do we how do we go about doing that? Are there any lessons we can take from looking at how states have approached to this, or, or what's the thinking on where how you find that? Yeah, so there is there are over four decades of litig litigation at the state level on sort of what is working. So there's really two basic models your listeners should understand for addressing rights to education. One is an equity model that would specifically address the funding disparities you raised in the first question and, and ensure that there are not sort of large egregious funding disparities and particularly push funding to be based on need rather than wealth and political influence. So that's sort of one model. The other is an adequacy model, which says we're not as concerned about the uh, dollar amount, but we are concerned that all children reach or at least have the opportunity to reach a certain outcome. And that has obvious funding implications, but what it doesn't do is try to close the gap between you know, the wealthiest district and the poorest district. It just tries to bring the lowest funded districts up to some kind of floor that would enable them to achieve a certain outcome. But what that outcome is, is deeply contested among scholars. So that was actually the reason I did my second book, because the first book looked at a federal right to education, but we really didn't engage with what should this right guarantee? And that is the entire part three of my book. It's different scholars, Linda Darling-Hammond, Rachel Moran, really leading scholars look at sort of what should every child be entitled to. So that is um, definitely a contested question. You know, there's no easy answer, but there are some thoughtful answers. Hello, Professor Robinson. Hello, Mr. Robinson. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. So let me follow up on your question about uh, your latest book, A Federal Right to Education, Fundamental Questions for Our Democracy. Recently, a federal appeals court recognized a right under the U.S. Constitution to a basic minimum education in the form of literacy. And uh, this took place for families in the city of Detroit. Uh, as you well know, Detroit has been a 
a hotspot for litigation for decades going back to um, the Milliken cases of the 70s. Tell our audience about the case, about the outcome, and about your thoughts. Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm so excited about this decision out of the Sixth Circuit at the end of April. So what the Sixth Circuit held, as Mr. Robinson correctly said, is that there is a constitutional right to a basic minimum education. So what does that mean? What that really means is that the um, due process clause, which guarantees substantive due process. So what does that mean? It, it really means that there is a, it's really substantive process about fundamental fairness. And the basic idea is that a basic minimum education is every child's constitutional right under substantive due process. And so the court did a two-part analysis to reach that ruling and determined that education is both deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions and it's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So the idea is that we have a long-standing commitment to education in our nation because we are a democracy. You cannot have a democracy without educated citizens who not only vote, but vote intelligently, vote in ways that are informed by the measures on the ballot, that informed by the candidates. And so what the court found is that the schools in Detroit which really the court noted were schools in name only. There were many paraprofessionals teaching students. He cited an even example of a student teaching a class um, when teachers wouldn't show up. They talked about large teacher shortages in the, in the district, but also just really conditions that none of us should have to ever send a child to, you know, vermin and cockroaches and other things in the schools out-of-date learning materials um, that just don't even, you know, bring children up to current history. And so the concern is that children leaving that system um, would not be in, have received a the ability to really engage in democracy effectively. And so the court is sending it back to the trial level to have a trial on whether the standard that they established a basic minimum education was or was not met. It's not clear if there will be a trial yet. Um, I am in touch with the lawyers on the case, but it's not clear if there'll be a trial or if they will actually settle the case and decide on some kind of remedy without going through litigation. So we'll see how they work that out, but that's the holding. And it is the first court to ever uh, rule this in the United States. So it's, it's exciting and new precedent. It's it's incredibly exciting, Kimberly. And as our listeners know, um, and as you might know, I grew up outside of Detroit. It's a place very near and dear to my heart. And the, the things that you just described are indeed the things that those of us who live in the area have seen. Um, and it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. I wonder, um, as, as we look back and, you know, you're an expert on sort of the history, the legal history of all this, to what extent do you believe that this ruling or or anything going forward that acts upon this ruling um, stands a chance of sort of setting the table for a place like Detroit to truly start to realize educational opportunity for its citizens. I think it very much has the potential for doing that, not just in Detroit, but in other places where children are not provided, you know, a basic minimum education. The, the precedent as it stands currently only reaches the Sixth Circuit, but there is litigation in other federal courts. There is a case in Connecticut. There is a case in Rhode Island. Lawyers basically have determined that going to state court, while they've gotten some important wins in state court, important changes in cases like the Rose case, cases um, out of New Jersey and New York, 
they've made some important gains, but we have not been able in state court to get the changes that are needed to ensure all children receive a basic minimum education. And so lawyers return to um to federal court, and I say return because they did start there fairly early on in the Rodriguez litigation, but in 1973, the Supreme Court held that mere funding disparities did not uh, rise to the level of a constitutional violation, but left open the very question that the Supreme Court, the Sixth Circuit, found in the Gary B. case, which is that the, in Rodriguez, they said, you know, no allegation has been made here. The children do not receive an education that would enable them to exercise their fundamental rights. And here in Detroit, the children have alleged just that. And so the court, you know, the Sixth Circuit felt that was clear that the Supreme Court had left it open. And so now you have numerous litigants returning to, to federal court seeking to ensure, again, some kind of floor of opportunity for all children, that that should be just their fundamental and really inalienable right. So if we talk about the state-federal distinction, and we know it's important in law, let's go back even further in history beyond um, talking about Millikan, just broadly talking about the ideas of educational opportunity. So we know uh, this year that Brown v. Board of Education 2 is 65 years old. And we know that Brown v. Board 1, of course, was 1954. Uh, even in that landmark decision, the courts didn't just you know, prescribe a national solution on how to deal with educational equity and other issues. And we've been dealing with that through a number of cases in the 90s, uh, Pitts and others. And so when you think about what just took place in the federal appeals court, and you think about the current composition of the Supreme Court, you know, how do you see the idea of a federal right playing itself out right now at the federal federal being constitutional, being Supreme Court level? Sure. So, you know, the court, the current court um, sort of leans fairly heavily to the right. And so I think it's going to be difficult to convince them that the federal court's should be involved in ensuring some kind of floor of opportunity. Um, I don't think it's impossible, in part because the conditions in places like Detroit are as grim as they are. And so you do have children coming out of the Detroit schools and other schools around the country who are essentially shut out of the political process because they don't have the education to engage their leaders in ways that would hold them accountable. And so it may be, you you may be able to convince um, even some of the conservative justices that this simply should not be. But I do think it's it's a very much an uphill battle. I think there are many people who would like to hold this kind of litigation until the court leans farther to the left. Um, So I think it would be a tough road. However, I do think several things have changed since Rodriguez that make it possible for this to happen. One is that the federal role in education since the time of Brown has expanded tremendously. So the federal government does now play a role in education that was unthinkable when Brown was decided. And that role has evolved in ways that you know, Congress sort of does set some parameters that schools have to abide by when they take federal funds. So there's a much larger federal pr- footprint than there was at the time of Brown. And there is also uh, a record of seeing that state courts really 
In Rodriguez, the court said state courts are the ones and state legislatures should address this problem. But it's clear that we still have an egregious problem of inequality and inequity in our schools and inadequacy. And so because of that, you know, you, you know, federalism says we want to have um, a laboratory of democracies, but this laboratory is broken. And you shouldn't keep, you know, running experiments in a broken laboratory without beakers and without Bunsen burners and things like that. So I really just think, you know, saying it should stay within state control when the states have had almost half a century to, you know, to work on this issue and still we're leaving children behind. I think some would be willing to say, okay, it's time to for the federal government to step in. But I think it's gonna you're gonna be hard pressed to get the current court to do that. But you you shift a couple of justices and we are could be in a very new ballgame. So the other thing that could happen is that Congress could pass legislation to recognize the right to education. We don't need the court to do that. I've written about that extensively, including my book, that we could have Congress recognize a right to education through legislation. So that's another possibility is that we could eventually um, have certain conditions that eventually, you know, recognize their right to education. So those are some of the possibilities. Even the court doesn't recognize it. You could get popular support for it such that Congress feels compelled to move on the issue. The Supreme Court is currently uh, looking at another case, uh, dealing with education out of Montana, the Espinosa case. We had a chance to have uh, one of our colleagues, um, Tim Keller from Institute of Justice, uh, weigh in on that. And so as I'm hearing you talk and think about the fact that the Detroit case focused on literacy and that we know that there's a link between literacy and liberty, that that in fact could be something that uh, right of center judges could look at because they, as well as those on the left, are concerned about the bedrock of our democracy. But because that case is, looked, is really focusing on making sure people not only can read but are literate, can participate in our process, that in fact could be an interesting way that... Uh, some of the justices could take a look at that case if it ultimately goes that far, but glad you brought that up. I've got a final question for you, and it, it's more about, I guess, the evolution of how you got to this point. A lot of your Harvard Law School colleagues went to Wall Street, others went to government, some in fact worked for nonprofits, and you decided to become a professor. Uh, what were some of the influences, either earlier or later in your life, that uh, encouraged you to take this path? So that's a great question. You know, one of my biggest influences is my father. He went to Howard Law School and spent his life dedicated to working on issues of civil rights. So he worked for quite a long time at EEOC, but then worked on other civil rights issues. So civil rights were talked about around our dinner table. And so he was certainly a big influence. My mother was a nurse, but she also was involved in civil rights. She filed a housing discrimination case um, in DC, and she also was at the March on Washington. So as a young child, I was definitely told these stories and didn't really appreciate them. And then one day as I was studying history and things, at University of Virginia, as it turns out, um, as an undergraduate, they started to come together and have meaning in life. And so I really certainly credit them, as well as my wonderful husband, uh, with inspiring me and, and encouraging me in my career and my work. So, you know, it's a privilege to work on these issues and think about solutions that would help all children um, get a great education. I think that really what drives me is that I feel but for the grace of God go I. So my parents moved us out of schools 
in Maryland that were struggling into stronger schools in the suburbs of Virginia so that my brother and I could get a great education. And they were very explicit about it. And my father, you know, took a demotion and a pay cut to do so because they felt so strongly about it. And that made an impression on me as a third grader. And so as I've learned how so few children get that kind of opportunity, I just think every child should get a great education. And so I, you know, I just continue to work on solutions that can work to help every child get a great education. It should not be just the wealthy get a great education. So those are the things that drive me. What what a sort of beautiful explanation of how you arrived where you are today. You know, and you mentioned um, your supportive husband and my wonderful supportive co-host, right? I'm really, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask for everybody um, who's listening, who knows Gerard and who knows you. I mean, so you guys are both top of your game professionals and making real difference in education reform. You're also parents and we're going through an, an interesting moment. And I, you know, you talked about dinner table conversation when you were a kid. I got to know, like, what's dominating dinner table conversation in the Robinson household these days? <laughs> what, what, what are you guys talking about? And, and also, what are you eating and who cooks and who does the dishes? <laughs> well, I'll tell you about one of our favorite games and then uh, um, Mr. Robinson can answer some of the other parts. But one of the, our favorite dinner table conversations is the three branches of government. So we, um, you know how they say, X percentage of people don't know the three branches of government. And I just have told yeah. the girls that's unacceptable because their mother's a law professor. So we we each take a branch of government. Um, somebody actually also serves as the vice president. So we have to campaign and get elected president. Then somebody's the Supreme Court, somebody's Congress. And so we just, we play that out. And th- oh. it's hilarious, um, you know, the different styles and different things that we you do. But, you know, you pass a law and then the Supreme Court overturns it. And the girl's like, what is that? Like, <laughs> So it's like, well, let's talk about what that is. So that I'm is interested to know what kinds of laws are being advocated and, and promulgated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's fun, but um, Gerard is actually incredibly helpful at home. He's the one that actually keeps our house. He's much much neater than I am, so he's the one that keeps our house organized. Um, and all three of his, it, it, all of us would say that. <laughs> well. You know, we suspected as much that he would be he would be um, exactly that kind of spouse. So that's yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. He's tremendous, really. And my, I would not be able to do the work I do without he's made many sacrifices for my career. And I am eternally grateful for them. So he's truly wonderful. Making it happen, Mr. Robinson. Well, Kimberly, it is just such a pleasure um, to hear your voice and to have you with us today. I'm going to maybe when my kids are a little bit older, we will try the three branches of government. I don't know what my three-year-old would say at this point, but we'll... uh... (laughs) Right now, we're just happy that he's not screaming in the background. But um, it's a it's a great idea, and I hope like maybe you guys should start a little YouTube channel or something so we can all have a <laughs> a window in. Although, nah. On the other hand, keep it keep it private. It's better. Um, <laughs> thanks for being with us today. We highly recommend your book uh, to our listeners. Available now, right? And um, yes. and best of luck to you. Uh, stay safe. Say stay healthy and. Um, Well, uh, Gerard doesn't have to say goodbye because he'll see you later. (laughs) But thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. So my tweet of the week comes from CBS News, May 4th, 2020. 
The Supreme Court to stream oral arguments for the first time as justices work remotely. And so really, we're going to see something new. Um, what's so interesting is the Supreme Court broke new ground on Monday as it conducted arguments remotely by telephone and streamed live uh, its audio for the first time, inviting all of us an experience to see what actually takes place amongst the nine justices who are in conversation about very important things. This is the first time, and depending upon what decisions are made, not too far away from the Supreme Court building, this may not be the last time it happens. And so the Supreme Court is joining the rest of the world in conversations using not only virtual, but also other types of medium to get the word out. And I'm glad to see that take place. This is really fascinating, isn't it? Like, and all of the all of the institutions that you think like could could never change, and and wow, we're watching it. Um, I'll be watching it. I think this is a it's a moment, is it not? <laughs> Something. All right. Well, Gerard, next week, uh, like I said, we are just lucky and lucky to have so many excellent guests with us on The Learning Curve. And next week, we're going to be talking to Kaya Henderson, and we probably don't need to tell anybody, but she's the former chancellor of the District of Columbia Public Schools. So really looking forward to that conversation and, and what an interesting person to be talking to at this time. So until then, I hope that you and your family have excellent dinner table debate. And um, I'd like to know, you know, what branch of government <laughs> you have to, to be tonight, uh, Gerard, or, or what the conversation is. But look forward to finding out uh, next time we're together. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye.